0: The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book and print cultures. stamping. Properties. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Longmore Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space contemplating Ireland through the community. Created by Start Coral City. Changes.
1: The Hub is about impact. 90%. The Hub is for everyone. Um, a warm welcome to everyone for the first of our Hillary Turn School of English staff postgraduate seminar series in collaboration with the Trinity Longroom Hub, who we thank for making this possible. I'm co-convener of this series alongside Orla Donnelly and we're delighted to have Sheneva Bianchini also join the, t- join the team this term and we thank Eric Schwartz for co-convening with us last term. Today, we'll be hearing from Creighton Professor Matthew Reznicek, who will be presenting his paper, Healing the Union, Health, Illness and Disability in the National Tale. A little bit of housekeeping before we begin. I'd like to ask you to please use the Q&A function if you have any questions. You can submit these at any time, but they do need to go in the Q&A function. It's at the bottom and it should be near the chat function on your screens. The chat function is available for general comments. Um, Normally, this is used towards the end for people to sing the praises of the speaker, which I'm sure will be particularly relevant today. Um, You are welcome to tweet along. And if you do tweet, please tag those on your screen now. So TCD English, TLR Hub and seminars TCD 2021. Brilliant. So it now remains for me to introduce our speaker. Dr. Reznicek currently serves as the Vice President for the American Conference for Irish Studies and Associate Editor of the Journal of Philosophy, Ethics and Humanities and Medicine. His research focuses broadly on Irish and British literature from the long 19th century. More specifically, he attempts to position literature written by Irish women within a broader social, political, geographical and aesthetic context. He achieves this through examining literature in three key frameworks, the medical humanities or health humanities, the connection to European opera and the economics of the modern city. He has published widely and his first book, The European Metropolis, Paris and 19th Century Irish Women Novelists, is forthcoming with Clemson University Press and Liverpool University Press.
0: Over to you, Dr. Resnitschek. Thank you so much. Uh, I'm going to share this if I wait. While I'm figuring this out, let me take a moment to, to thank Orla and Claire and Ginevra for, for such an extraordinary um, opportunity to spend time talking to you all this morning. It's it's such an honor to be able to join the Long Room Hub and the School of English. Um, I'm very, very grateful. In his 1707, The Story of the Injured Lady, Jonathan Swift represents the state of relations between Ireland, Scotland, and England through the bodies of two women, and a man who has, quote, played the usual part of a too fortunate lover, affecting on all occasions to show his authority and to act like a conqueror. England, the too fortunate lover, soon finds fault with the low-born family, the servants, the household governance of his new lover, and begins to refer to her, quote, as an old dependent upon his family. In addition to the rakish representation of England, Swift characterizes Scotland with a remarkable focus on the state of the body. The first mistress, whose house is separated from the gentleman's by an old broken wall, is described as, quote, tall and lean and very ill-shaped. She has bad features and a worse complexion. She has a stinking breath and 20 ill smells about her besides. Which are yet more unsufferable by her natural sluttishness, for she is always lousy and never without the itch. The emphasis Swift places not only on her sexuality, but especially on the state of her body, clearly diagnoses Scotland as a woman with a venereal disease, one of the scourges of the early 18th century. The specific symptoms of the itch and 20 ill smells both correspond to the disease's well known traits, which Swift would also detail in his A Beautiful Young Nymph Going to Bed from 1734. These characteristic signals of VD are, of course, traced to Scotland as woman's sluttishness, her faithlessness and her partnership with England as man. In contrast to Scotland's diseased body, Ireland as woman declares that she, quote, was reckoned to be as handsome as any in our neighborhood until I became pale and thin with grief and ill usage. Here, the cause of bodily decomposition is not the woman's lack of virtue, but England's ill usage. In the year when Scotland is formally incorporated into the political entity of the United Kingdom, Swift utilizes the healthy or ill body to survey the state of relations between the three nations. In the story of the injured lady, Swift's representation lays an important pattern for the literary tradition that will culminate in the Romantic period literary genre of the national tale. The identification of the socio-political bodies, um, of the socio-political bodies of the body politic with individual corporeal bodies, most typically a masculine England and a feminine Ireland and a feminine Scotland. Simultaneously, Swift's tract provides the dominant framework in which the national tale has been considered, quote, through the metaphor of marriage. As scholars like Katie Trumpener, Ina Farris, Mary Jean Corbett, Julia Ann Miller, and others have noted, the national tale is a genre developed, quote, initially by female authors, who from the outset address questions of cultural distinctiveness, national policy, and political separatism, which primarily navigates these socio-political questions through the prototypical denouement that ends in a marriage which symbolically unites the distinct national communities. The privileged role of marriage persists in the subsequent development of the historical novel, which as Trumpner has demonstrated, emerged out of and in response to the national tale. With the publication of Scott's Waverly or to 60 years since, the development of the historical novel reflects the national tale's, quote, ability to theorize political complexities, as well as its ambitions, both to reflect and direct national sentiment. Indeed, Scott famously asserted that Mariah Edgeworth's novels had done, quote, more to complete the Union than perhaps all the legislative enactments by which it had been followed up. Whereas Swift's Injured Lady ends with Ireland as woman jilted by a treaty of marriage, concluded between England and the disease-riddled Scotland, the national tales of the early 19th century almost always end with the successful marriage of the Englishman and the virtuous woman as Ireland. The difference between Swift's formulation of this national marriage plot and those of Edgeworth, Owenson, Scott, Germaine de Staël, and to a lesser extent, Jane Austen is the interdependent role of disease and healing. For Swift, Scotland's 20 ill smells and itch are not enough to dissuade the rakish England, but the story of the injured lady also omits what I believe to be a central and underexamined element in the national tales of the early 19th century. The figure of a woman who can tend the illnesses, wounds, fevers and disabilities that mark these colonial bodies as minority bodies is only if and or once these illnesses wounds fevers and disabilities are tended cured nursed healed that the symbolic marriage and thus the socio-political unification of the body politic can be achieved this reassessment of the national tale draws attention to the site of the body not simply as political metaphor or colonial stand-in but as an actual physical site of illness disability suffering and pain In so doing, my analysis builds on the work of scholars like Candace Ward, Mary Poovy, Pamela Gilbert, Jason Farr, and Essica Joshua, scholars whose work insists that, quote, even when fever operates metaphorically, it resonates in especially powerful ways precisely because of its symbolic, because its symbolic import cannot be divorced from the 18th century actualities of the disease. Thus, While disease, illness, and disability may also function metaphorically in these national tales, my argument stems from the actualities of the body, prioritizing the representation of various bodily and mental conditions rather than simply their political allegories. For example, when Edgeworth famously writes in 1834 about the impossibility quote of drawing Ireland as she is at present because a fever has distorted the nature on the island, I argue that this reveals not simply the political history of violence that disrupts the narratological unions of her earlier novels, but also reflects the reality of the cholera outbreak that swept through the island in 1832-33. During that outbreak, roughly 40% of those who contracted the disease died. And in some places on the island, the death rate was as high as 76%. The spread of the disease was profound. By the 2nd of May, 430 people had died in Dublin. By the 5th of July, nearly 1,500 had died. And by Christmas, the numbers of deaths in Dublin were estimated at 4,400. It's estimated that in the first nine months of the epidemic, Ireland lost more people than did England and Wales. Dublin alone lost more people than London. The consistency of the outbreak of disease as well as the rapidity of its spread signals the power fever exercised in the historical moment reminds us of the degree to which any metaphorical use of fever depends upon the embodied experience of a medical condition. Fever functions neither simply as a reference to viral outbreaks, nor simply as a metaphor for the social, political or cultural landscape. Only taken together can the actualities of disease and illness make fever a useful tool for understanding the irregularities, disruptions and threats posed to the healthy social body by various cultural, political an ideological phenomena in the national tale. As Swift's story of the injured lady shows, both the political acts of union and the narratives that enact them are about the management of individual bodies. The political union seek to form, to augment, to control the political body, while the narrative functions, while the narratives function as, quote, the prosthetic join which binds us to ourselves, to each other, and to the body politic. In this framework, then, the national tale and the act of union must be understood in terms of the Hobbesian tradition of the body politic. In which the individual body and the collective body of the nation are joined, quote, through the work of political art, a kind of artifice which takes the body out of nature and remakes it as a subject of the state. As Walter Scott's comments regarding Mariah Edgeworth suggest, national tale was considered a form of political art even at the time of its publication, doing more to achieve the union than any legislative act. However, feminist criticism of the national tale consistently, has consistently pointed out the process by which the body is remade as a subject of the state, and that this process is inherently rooted in violence. Julia Ann Miller insists the national tales of Edgeworth and Owenson, quote, reveal the violence just under the surface of the marriage that functions as the allegory for the political union. Insisting upon the violence of these political and narrative forms, these interpretations draw upon the logic of Foucault's concept of governmentality, a process by which the inherent violence of Hobbes' Leviathan is internalized through structures that manage, police, and classify the body of the state. These classificatory powers of the state is essential in Mary Poovey's conception of the body politic because of its exclusionary power. In her foundational study, Hoovy notes, oh, notes that the social body was constituted through exclusion. The poor were not usually considered members of the body politic. Indeed, as diseased, unproductive, criminal, plague-ridden members, the poor were considered inimical to the health of the body politic. Pamela Gilbert helpfully extends this claim by connecting it to Foucault's concept of governmentality, arguing that, quote, Poverty, crime, and what would finally be termed public health issues came to be understood as problems in the development of the citizen, problems of individual bad health that threatened the overall health of the social body. For both Poovy and Gilbert, the social body is framed not only as an exclusionary site of certain diseased or unhealthy bodies, but also as the site of governmental and state policing of public health. The individual bodies are surveilled and monitored to prevent the spread of disease to the wider public. Thus, the bodies of its citizens constitute the social body, while those deemed diseased or unhealthy are excluded. Poofy and Gilbert have argued persuasively that the classificatory boundaries of the social body are intimately tied up with representations of and concerns around illness, disease, and public health. The limits of belonging, that is, are correlated to conceptions of health and illness. Thus, Swift's distinction between a Scotland riddled with 20 ill smells and the itch, on the one hand, and an Ireland that is, quote, as handsome as any in our neighbourhood, employs this logic of health and illness as the dividing line between the nations that ought to be included in the acts of union, arguing that a healthier Ireland is more meritorious than an ailing, VD-infected Scotland. This same biological or immunological line of demarcation persists. Well, into the development of the national tale in the early 19th century, when it becomes even more pronounced and associated, not with the consistent outbreaks of various fevers and diseases, and thus public health, but also with the metaphorical outbreaks of revolutionary fevers, and thus public political health. What I want to argue here is that the national tale, as a political art that remakes the body as a subject of the state, enacts Peter Boxall's narrative prosthetic connecting the individual body to the social body, but also, and perhaps more importantly, as a measure of health, delineating between bodies healthy enough to be remade into citizens of the state and those too unhealthy, too ill, too disabled, too poor, and too aberrant to be able to enjoy the status of citizenship. The national tale ultimately reveals not simply the enactment of the unions, but a biopolitical basis on which citizenship is imagined and granted, the violent exclusion of the ill and disabled in early 19th century conceptions of governmentality. Reading the national tale then as a genre that is fundamentally about the regulation of individual bodies in order to produce and act, define, police, and regulate a new political body refines the genre's relationship to the broader body politic, beyond the metaphor of marriage. It reveals the regulatory, exclusionary, and biopolitical distinctions that govern conceptions of citizenship as healthy and able-bodied. But as the novels of Walter Scott and Mariah Edgeworth demonstrate, the enactment of the political union and the marital union in the national tale exhibits an ambiguous relationship to those figures who would be cast out or denied citizenship in the new union. In Scott's The Black Dwarf from 1817, the disabled person is crucial to achieving the personal union of marriage and moreover is essential to quelling the Jacobite threat that undermines the stability of the political union. In Edgeworth's ennui, the political union is threatened by an individual characterized as disabled, but also by a widespread illness and fever that infects the broader citizenship. This infected community begins to articulate an alternative political union that privileges the citizenship of individuals characterized by the same disability and or illness. Ultimately, attending to the representations of health, illness, and disability in the national tales of Scott and Edgeworth refines our conceptions of citizenship and belonging, as well as our understanding of health and ability in the early years of 19th century Ireland and Britain. The Articles of Union that inaugurated the union between Scotland and England and subsequently produced the entity of Great Britain clearly sets out limitations on the citizenship of certain bodies. Not only must the crown be passed to the, quote, most excellent Princess Sophia, Electress, and Duchess Dowager of Hanover, and the heirs of her body being Protestants. The act similarly insists, quote, the subjects of the United Kingdom of Great Britain shall, from and after the Union, have full freedom and intercourse of trade and navigation, to and from any port or place within the said United Kingdom, and the dominions and plantations thereunto belonging. The act of the union simultaneously grants citizenship and freedom to certain bodies, being Protestants, while it also defines subjectivity and freedom in terms of labor and movement, intercourse of trade and navigation. It's become a critical commonplace to trace the development of disability in the 18th, 18th and 19th centuries through the ideological matrix of liberalism, free market economics, British nationalism and professionalized medicine. Scholars like Youngquist, Boxall, and Farr find this not least because of the way that citizenship, labor, and identity are connected in the writings of John Locke and Adam Smith. The bodily norm, to borrow from Youngquist, that emerges from this intellectual history is one of, quote, a private body whose labor produces property and is therefore fungible, a British body whose health reproduces propriety and is therefore normative. Defining the bodily norm in terms of labor, productivity, Britishness, and propriety, Youngquist argues the Act of Union of 1707 began, quote, a cultural project of creating Great Britain by attempting to unite a diverse populace into an identifiable population. The Black Dwarf, published as part of his Tales of My Landlord, not only returns to this inaugural moment of national production, it demonstrates the ways that citizenship is defined in opposition to bodies marked as different, disabled and abnormal. Although the eponymous black dwarf is central to the preservation of both a personal union and the political union, Scott's novel enacts Youngquist's cultural project by expelling the abnormal canny Elshi of Mucklestein Moore from the identifiable population. Citizenship in Scott's newly united Great Britain only belongs to certain bodies that adhere to that cultural norm. Considering Scott's own constant struggle with various illnesses and forms of disability, it should not be surprising that these metaphors recur so consistently in so many of his novels. As John Sutherland notes in his biography, the writer's quote, portraiture of himself in boyhood stresses his thoughtlessness in the face of handicap. In his own autobiography, Scott recalls the quote, odd remedies secured to aid my lameness, including the suggestion that so often as a sheep was killed for the use of the family, I should be stripped and swathed up in in the skin, warm as it was flayed from the carcass of the animal. In the first 18 years of his life, the list of serious ailments Scott suffered is remarkable. Sutherland lists, quote, infantile paralysis at one and a half, a relapse at four, which led to a year in Bath an illness at school, which led to his missing two terms. In his second year at college, another severe illness that lost him several months of tuition. And in the second year of his apprenticeship, a near fatal hemorrhage, which needed months of bed rest and convalescence. These early brushes with severe illness and disability not only continued to affect Scott throughout his life, but also clearly shaped the representation of illness and disability in his writing. Amongst his novels, the Black Dwarf most clearly engages questions of disability, citizenship, and the political formation of the Union. This novel focuses on the relationships between Canny Elshi, the titular Black Dwarf, from his arrival near the town of Ganderclew, which lies near the border with England. The introduction insists that the, quote, ideal being who is here presented as residing in solitude and haunted by a consciousness of his own deformity and the suspicion that is being generally subjected to the scorn of his fellow men is not altogether imaginary. Drawing on a medical observation, Scott's introduction provides almost precise measurements to produce a, quote, tolerably exact and unexaggerated portrait of the original figure. I'm not going to read the, the entirety of this quote, but I want to point out a couple of elements. He was not quite three and a half feet high since he could stand upright in the door of his mansion. Uh, his skull, which was of oblong and rather unusual shape, was said to be of such strength that he could strike it with ease through the panel of a door or the end of a barrel. His laugh is said to have been quite horrible, and his screech-owl voice, shrill, uncouth, and dissonant, correspond well with his other peculiarities. He never wore shoes, being unable to adapt them to his misshapen, fin-like feet, but he always had both feet and legs quite concealed and wrapped up with pieces of cloth. He always walked with a sort of pole or pike staff considerably taller than himself. His habits were, in many respects, singular and indicated a mind congenial to its uncouth tabernacle. A jealous, misanthropical, and irritable temper was his prominent characteristic. The sense of his deformity haunted him like a phantom, and the insults and scorn to which this exposed him had poisoned his heart with fierce and bitter feeling. This rather lengthy and exhaustive description of the figure is worth quoting in full because of the way it repeatedly emphasizes the sense of deformity, the conflation of physical and mental conditions, and most importantly, the way it attributes his, quote, fierce and bitter feelings to the treatment he has received because of his deformity. The fact that this sense of deformity, quote, haunted him like a phantom, demonstrates the degree to which he has internalized the alienation and exclusion with which he is treated by others. The introduction adds that he, quote, detested children on account of their propensity to insult and persecute him. His misanthropy, his misanthropy, Scott insists, quote, was founded in a sense of his own preternatural deformity. Attributing his misanthropy to a sense of his own deformity reveals the internalization of discrimination. In a way, this recalls Michael Oliver's insistence that, quote, disability and impairment are culturally produced. Elizabeth Barnes contends that this characterization understands disability as the, quote, disadvantage produced by social prejudice against certain types of persons, persons with impairments. As Esica Joshua explains, this formulation of disability as a social or cultural production treats disability as a product of, quote, the rise of capitalism, and with it, an increase in the ideology of individualism. Although scholars critique or refine this understanding of disability, The social model provides an important formulation for understanding the way disability functions in the Black Dwarf. From the very outset, disability is marked not only as other, but as the cause of prejudice. Joshua, building on Oliver's work, claims that the social model reveals the role that the ideology of individualism plays. Ultimately, conceiving of disability as the antithesis of the, quote, requirements of the labor market, disguises the reality that we all live in a state of mutual interdependence. The model of disability that Scott lays out from the outset sets individualism and able-bodiedness in opposition to a state of mutual interdependence that undermines the liberal conception of citizenship. Throughout the novel, Elsie rejects human society, living outside of the community in a hovel made of stone and moss. He rejects, quote, common humanity as a catchword that noose for woodcocks, that common disguise for man traps, that bait with the, which the wretched idiot who swallows will soon find covers a hook with barbs 10 times sharper than those you lay for the animals which you murder for your luxury. The only creatures for whom he expresses any affection are the two goats he keeps, claiming that uh, quote, that you at least see no differences in form which can alter your feelings to a benefactor. To you, the finest shape that ever statuary molded would be an object of indifference or of alarm, should it present itself instead of the misshaped trunk to whose services you are accustomed. In contradistinction to the prejudice with which he is treated, or at least expects to be treated, by able-bodied humans, Elsie provides a a mode of cooperation that, quote, sees no difference in forms, a vision of cooperation and collaboration that is without prejudice against the minority body. Of course, this type of collaboration is directly opposed to to the individualist self-reliance demanded by liberal conceptions of personhood laid out by both Oliver and Youngquist. Noting the mistreatment with which he has been treated by the domestic whom I had bred from infancy and even the friend whom I had supported with my fortune, Elsie insists that both, quote, thought me more fit for the society of lunatics, for their, disgraced restra- their disgraceful restraints, for their cruel privations, than for communication with the rest of humanity. The almost Edenic cooperation between human and animal that disregards form and ability stands in stark contrast to the mockery, the threat of incarceration, and the privation with which able-bodied society treats the minority body. That threat of incarceration especially demonstrates the degree to which this minority body is problematic for the state and for the category of citizenship. As Leonard Davis notes, quote, an able body is the body of a citizen. Deformed, deafened, amputated, obese, female, perverse, crippled, maimed, blinded bodies do not make up the body politic. Davis's claim might seem overly broad, but the language of the act of union proves helpful. Citizenship belongs to those who are capable to enjoy, quote, full freedom and intercourse of trade and navigation to and from any port or place. Similarly, John Locke insists that freedom belongs to those who, quote, hath mixed his labor with and joined it to something that is his own. For Davis, it is not simply that the disabled body does not fit into the category of citizenship, excuse me, into the category of citizenship, because of a supposed lack of ability to produce, but their inclusion threatens the body politic. If individual citizens are not fit, Davis insists, they do not fit into the nation, then the national body will not be fit. The threat of this unfit body, the threat this unfit body poses to the national body. is made clear by the history of Elsie's own incarceration and the mode in which it is revealed. His personal history is made clear in the novel denouement, in which a Jacobite plot to assist the return of the Catholic King James collides with the equally mercenary plot to force Isabella Vere to marry Sir Frederick Langley, who is one of her father's Jacobite co-conspirators. Just as the forced marriage is about to take place in the catacombs beneath the castle, quote, a voice as if issuing from the tomb of Mr. Vere's deceased wife, called in such loud and harsh accents as awakened every echo in the vaulted chapel, forbear. The voice belongs to, quote, the dwarf who stepped from behind the monument and placed himself full in front of Mr. Veer. The effect of so strange and hideous an apparition in such a place and in such circumstances appalled all present, but seemed to annihilate the laird of Eli's Law, who dropping his daughter's arm staggered against the nearest pillar and clasping it with his hands as if for support, laid his brow against the column. The ghostly rhetoric that is tied to Elshi's minority body emphasizes the strangeness of the scene, but also more clearly marks him out as a threat to this plot to achieve a new marital and political union. The disembodiment of Elshi's first pronouncement, coming from the shadows where he is hidden from view, erases the disruptive threat of his body. Is made all the more real once he reveals himself. The use of annihilation conveys some sense of the threat that he, his embodied presence poses to the Union. Indeed, the threat seems to be Elsie's ability to reverse the expected location of power. The longer is Mr. Vere or Sir Frederick in charge of the plot to force Isabella to marry or, as we will see, to restore King James to the throne. Instead, The disruptive presence of Elsie's body insists on a new power dynamic. Once rooted in cooperation, Elsie reveals the truth of the matter that Sir Frederick will, quote, wed neither the heiress of Ellie's Law nor of Molly Hall, nor of Molly Hall, nor of Pulverton, nor of one furrow of land unless she marries with my consent. The marriage, in light of Elsie's revelation, is nothing more than an economic transaction based in self interest and coercion. Turning to Mr. Veer, Elsie asks, quote, what is thy wretched subterfuge now? Thou who wouldst sell thy daughter to relieve thee from danger as in famine thou wouldst have slain and devoured her to preserve thy own vile life. Elsie's revelation of Veer's self-interest and exploitative commodification of his daughter's body recalls Oliver's claims about the treatment of disability as the antithesis of economic function disguising our quote, state of mutual interdependence, even upon those bodies deemed unproductive. Not only does Elsie control the conferral of wealth, it also shows the power of interdependence to upend the destructive and acquisitive nature of the individualistic conception of the body. Elsie's intervention on behalf of Isabella demonstrates the disruptive capacity of interdependence in two key ways. Firstly, through the means by which his cooperation with Isabella was achieved, and secondly, through the intersection of his efforts and those of Hobby Elliot and the Laird of Ernstcliffe, Ernstcliffe that ultimately disrupts the Jacobite plot. In their first interaction, Elsie demands Isabella remain behind her crass and unkind fellows. During this interview, he explains that he, quote, who wishes ill to all mankind cannot wish more evil to Isabella so much as her life crossed by it. As a result, Gives to her a common rose and implores her to quote, preserve it, however, and do not part with it. Come to me in your hour of adversity, show me that rose, or but one leaf of it, where it withered as my heart is, if thou should be in the fiercest and what wi- if it should be in my fiercest and wildest movements of rage against a hateful world, still it will recall gentler thoughts to my bosom, and perhaps afford happier prospects to thine. The rose serves as a compact, a promise of cooperation and interdependence between the seemingly disempowered Elsie and the apparently well-situated Isabella. Of course, these fortunes reverse, and Isabella, on being forced to marry Sir Frederick in order to save her father, on the eve of the Jacobite rebellion, turns to Elsie for protection. Indeed, Isabella is repeatedly told that Elsie, quote, who is other far than what he seems, actually possesses the means of redeeming you from this hateful union. As I'll show in a moment, the slippage between marital and political union here is significant because it means that both the United Kingdom and Isabella depend upon the very being whose body has been marked as incapable of belonging as a citizenship, as a citizen. In the course of her discussion with the dwarf, Isabella learns not only of Elsie's history as Sir Edward Molly and his imprisonment after the charge of manslaughter, but also of the fact that while imprisoned, Elsie had been deceived by his betrothed bride and his one friend who had married her. These deceivers are Isabella's parents. Mr. Veer placed Elsie, quote, under medical restraint and prolonged his confinement in order to enjoy the management of his immense estates. In this history, Elsie reveals the degree to which he has internalized the individualist logic that distances the disabled body from citizenship through its supposed dependence. While Elsie insists that, quote, this is the life of nature, solitary, self-sufficing, and independent. Isabella responds by declaring, quote, it is not the law of nature. From the time that the mother binds the child's head to the moment that some kind assistant wipes the death damp from the brow of the dying, we cannot exist without mutual help. All therefore that need aid have right to ask it of their fellow mortals. No one who has the power of granting can refuse it without guilt. This ethic of care mirrors Daniel Angster's argument that, quote, because human beings universally depend upon one another for care, we all have moral obligations to care for others in need. If we all depend upon each other, this conception of care and mutual interdependence, quote, militates against the ideas of autonomy, liberty, independence, and self-reliance that are so enshrined in post-enlightenment thought. Furthermore, it undermines the binary categorization of citizenship they simply on the need for assistance, since, quote, mankind, the race, would perish did they cease to aid each other. This compact of dependence, of Isabella turning to Elsie in her moment of need, and of Elsie responding because he is capable, is the key to disrupting the threat of the forced marriage, and simultaneously the threat of the Jacobite plot. Intertwined with the prevention of Isabella's forced marriage is the prevention of that rebellion, The preservation of the political union depends upon the disruption of the enforced and illegitimate personal union. This too depends upon mutual interdependence in a way that undermines the individualist logic that isolates the minority body from the category of citizenship. Since Isabella's wedding is arranged for the night before the outbreak of the Jacobite rebellion, the castle of Law is packed, quote, with the gentlemen of note in the neighborhood attached to the Jacobite interest, but also many subordinate malcontents whom difficulty of circumstances, love of change, resentment against England, or any numerous causes which inflamed men's passion at the time, rendered apt to join in powerless enterprise. The men of rank and substance were not many in number. The Jacobite cause in Scott's rendering is populated by malcontents, while the, quote, large proprietors stood aloof, and most of the smaller gentry and yeomanry were the Presbyterian persuasion, and therefore, however displeased with the union, unwilling to engage in a Jacobite conspiracy. These, then, are the rabble, the dregs, the troublemakers. And indeed, the feast before the rebellion is characterized by the, quote, killing revulsion of spirits which often take place before a desperate revolution. Because of the lack of a widespread base, because of the lack of mutual interdependence, the rebellion is doomed to fail. Not only does James fail to arrive in the country to stir up the rebellion, but the rebels receive a coded note that reveals the, quote, West country partners have resolved to withdraw, as it must prove a losing concern. In contrast to the self-dependent and isolated rebels, Scott poses a conglomerate body led by Earnscliffe and Hobby Elliott, who, quote, come here with 20 or 30 us, in my name and the kings or queens call they her, and canny Elshies into the bargain to keep the peace. The interdependence shown in the anti-Jacobit cause explicitly includes Elsie in order to, quote, keep the peace. His presence, his participation in the name of the queen suggests his having achieved citizenship in the new union. However, once order has been restored and Isabella has been made safe, Elsie declares its intention, quote, that you will hear of and see this lump of deformity no more. To you, I shall be dead ere I am actually in my grave. You will think of me as of a friend disencumbered from the toils and crimes of existence. For the moment that reaffir- for the moment that reaffirms the union, Elsie's belonging and citizenship matter. But as soon as it is restored, as soon as it is vouchsafed, he is intent on restating the distinction. His insistence that quote this lump of deformity shall be dead returns us to the internalization of a social model of disability, one in which it is defined by the prejudice experienced by the minority body. Even as Elsie reestablishes his own exclusion, his living death, he demonstrates the ongoing importance of interdependence by providing Isabella and Earnscliffe extraordinary wealth and even providing a, quote, short deed of gift that endowed Halbert or Hobby Elliott and Grace Armstrong In full property with a considerable sum. These gifts reinscribe the degree to which happiness, sociability, and even social belonging depend upon others. Despite this recognition, or perhaps because of the way this challenges notions of liberal selfhood, the novel ends with a broader social landscape, reinforcing the exclusion of Elshi's minority body. The disappearance of Elshi, quote, corroborated the reports which the common people had spread concerning him. In short, the evils most dreaded and deprecated by the inhabitants of that pastoral country are ascribed to the agency of the Black dwarf. The minority body that reveals the role of mutual dependence in achieving and maintaining social stability must be, quote, dreaded and deprecated in the newly united Scotland. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, That's
1: such a fascinating talk and I enjoyed it, even with it being outside my kind of traditional purview. I enjoyed it very much. Um, We're still waiting on a couple of Q&A things to come through, but I might ask my own question in the interim, if that's okay. Um, You might want to stop screen sharing um, just so that we're giant on the screen and we can be replete with power. Um, but uh I wanted to ask, um, and I suppose this stems from a very kind of pop cultury reminiscence of in Beauty and the Beast, um, but this kind of folk tale where you have the deformed hag appearing as a test, when actually that might not be her kind of true appearance, but it being a an explicit test of moral um kind of it, that it would be a moral failing to act in a prejudiced way to the the deformed body as it's perceived. Are there any points in any of the, the focal texts that you work on where it is presented as a kind of a moral test as to whether you're prejudiced or not?
0: I, I think so. I think so in the scene where, again, the, the gift of the rose, right, um, parallels Beauty and the Beast. When... Isabella and her friends are pursuing, are, are making fun of Elsie when they first meet him. Mm. The two friends are the ones um, calling him names, uh, dwelling on how ugly he is and how unfit for society he is. And Isabella isn't. And it's in part because of her response to him that Elshi develops this sort of pact with her Mm. also, as we learn later, because of the history of her parents and all of this. But I do think there is a moral element in it. Similarly, I, I think that there's also a, it, in something like Ennui with Mariah Edgeworth, when the Earl of Glenthorne is supposed to be dead, he's able to hear his servants talk about him. And so it reveals the immorality of their treatment of him, uh, the the immoral way in which he is he is um, seen by his his servants.
1: Yeah, no, that, that's really interesting, and I think that I kind of I wondered whether that was a very foolish question because you've pulled out these threads of kind of mutual dependence and the and the symbolism of it, and I kind of thought, you know, it will be obviously it's morally good. Not to reject someone if you have this mutual codependence, um, but I, I wanted to check. So thank you very
0: much. Well, well Claire, let me ask because I think it's interesting, right? Like we in the history of disability, right? There's there's a distinction between sort of your period up through the early modern, um, where disability is associated with sort of either divine punishment or divine reward. Um, and, and so the 18th century, according to scholars like Jason Farr and Leonard Davis and and Esica Joshua, really begins to see a shift away from obviously the religious connotation of disability toward a more statist uh, conception of disability. And so I'm really interested in kind of the way that the exceptional body that, that you kind of trace um, is both moralized and and also kind of problematizes, obviously a historical notions of ability, disability. but it's such it's kind of an interesting kind of through thread to think about the exceptional body.
1: It really is and I think that um, that was one of the things that surprised me because I haven't had any experience personally in, in delving deep into disability studies, but I was immediately my brain was connecting to these different kind of medieval folklore tropes and I have looked at the figure of the kind of the hag and the shape-shifting woman. Um, And you do get from medieval Latin and from those um, medieval medical beliefs as far back as kind of Galen. I don't know Mm -hmm. if I'm saying that right. This idea of kind of the, like you say, the religious implications of the body that is outside the norm. But you also do have this idea a long way back of the kind of the hidden power of it and the kind of, like you said, this idea of Elsie being more capable or being perceived as being more than he appears that's definitely an idea that's embedded in a lot of folklore even the kind of the princess and the frog right um this idea of kind of the surprising capacity of the excluded body um is really like you say it's just fascinating so I'd be happy to talk about that more but I should um let other people get a word in (laughs) Um, so we have a question from one of our panelists, and then we do have one from an attendee as well, which is great. Um, I will turn to the attendee one and then come back to the panelist. So we have a question from Margaret Masterson, which says, Matthew, could you speak a little bit about the idea you touched on about propriety being a state of health? I'm thinking of Edgeworth mainly. Is propriety or right conduct more important or somehow prized differently than general good health? I'm not sure I'm articulating this well, but I'm interested in moral health versus physical health.
0: Yeah, so so that's such a wonderful question, Margaret. And I think they're deeply implicated um, and bound up together, right? And, and Edgeworth's ennui, and the entirety of the tales of fashionable life is kind of a perfect example of this. In Richard Lovell's introduction to The Tales of Fashionable Life, he talks about um, the fashionable disease of ennui being produced by modern conditions of consumption. And I think um, the the introduction also says that he hopes that the, the cure is not worse than the symptoms of the disease itself, suggesting that his daughter's novel is part of the cure. and. There's something worth thinking about um, the way in which Edgeworth ties conduct. So in a sort of Smithian, Burkean framework of social order and productivity to the re to the moral and, and emotional reform that cures Glenthorne of his illness. Um, so I think. You're absolutely right. And there's even to kind of take the next step, right? Edgeworth does such an interesting sort of what Boxall would describe as a prosthetic connection between the moral health of, um, of Glenthorne and the moral health of his towns. Um, Ennui is kind of perfect because it, it shows two different communities. Um, And if one is governed rationally in this Burkean model, it it is healthy socially and politically. One that is governed in a less healthy, less productive manner uh, has all the social ills that you would expect Edgeworth to show to come from a lack of of, um, industry. And so the correlation between social, moral, and emotional, physical health is Utterly bound up together. And I think it in some ways comes back both to Hobbes, uh, Locke, and especially to Burke. If we think about um, the reflections on the revolution in France, Burke is in many ways diagnosing the conditions of French society and talks about it several times as a palsy that has seized the body of France. And so there's something really interesting about the moral and then the way that the moral reflects or internalizes the, the physical, emotional aspects.
1: Brilliant. Thank you. And thank you, Margaret, for the question. Um, it's all so interesting. Um, so we have a few more questions that have all come in very quickly in the Q&A, um, and we'll get through as many as we can. But we have one from Rachel Lynch, or. Rakyle, I'm sorry if I'm saying names wrong, but we have fascinating discussion, Matthew, thank you. I have a thought that leads into a question. I found your subcategories of physical bodily dysfunction, deformity, for example, very thought-provoking. You did touch briefly on contagion with your reference to the cholera outbreak of 1832. Could you expand a bit more on the uses of contagion in the national tale?
0: Rachel, this is such a useful question. and I'm going to give you two specific examples. One is from Edgeworth, and the other is from uh, Germaine de Staël. So in Edgeworth, and this is, I had originally promised to write about both the Black Dwarf and Ennui, and then I hit 5,000 words, and I was like, there's no way this is going to work in a 40-minute 40, 40 paper. Um, but in Ennui, there is an outbreak of what Edgeworth describes as an insurrectionary fever. Uh, amongst the populace of this town um and it's related to the earl of glenthorne's body man um tom uh, joe kelly who's described as as uh, a half-wit and sort of mentally disabled and is kicking up this insurrectionary fever and it's it's repeatedly described as sort of contagious or having spread uh That the Earl of Glenthorne is unaware of the symptoms of this disease. And so the the Edgeworthian model is that fever functions kind of politically as um, a measure for the the stability of the environment. But I do think that is connected to the outbreaks, not just of cholera, but of typhus and the various diseases that ravaged Irish society, especially Dublin. in the early 19th century. But in Germaine de Staël, in, in Corinne, which is 1807, 1806, um, so basically the same time as Owenson is writing um, The Wild Irish Girl, uh, Germaine de Staël is writing uh, Corinne or Italy. And there's a, a, towards the end of the novel, there's an outbreak of plague that takes place in um, one of the towns. I think it's Florence, but it might be Venice. Um, And there are repeated kind of evocations of the plague doctors, of of men dressed in white carrying the bodies to and from different places uh, to remove the infection. And so I, I haven't yet worked out what the connotations for the stall are other than the way in which like it reveals the intervention of the state into the the connections or into the experience of illness. So I don't know, Rachel, if that entirely answers your question, but I think that, I think the answer is that there are kind of two competing or, or parallel roles of, of fever.
1: That's great. Thank you very much, both for the question and for the detailed answer. To be able to pull specific examples like that is so impressive to me, always will be. Um, We have another question here from Tierney Powell. Again, my apologies if I'm pronouncing things wrong. Um, Or We've just had a message from Rachel saying that is great, it is capitalised. Thanks. There's also three exclamation marks, which is always a compliment. Um, So from Tiani Powell, we have, thank you for a fascinating talk, Dr. Reznicek, and to TCD English for organising. I'm wondering if Dr. Resnacek would be willing to speak more to the issue of mobility in terms of disability and national union, but particularly in terms of modes of transportation, train, ship, etc. Thanks so much. Yeah.
0: Tierney, that's such a, a useful question, especially thinking about your own work on infrastructure. And I'm gonna to point to um, Penny Fielding's work on the geography of the Scottish Gothic, where she talks about the development of, of roads in Scottish fiction from this period. And as as Franco Moretti has argued um, via Bakhtin, Scott is very interested in sort of the stadial development of history, that the geography is connected to uh, stages or points of historical development. And as you get closer to England, the more modern you are. As you retreat further to the highlands, the less modern, the more pre-modern you are. Um, And in most of Scott's novels, especially the novels that deal with cross-border traffic, it's almost always by horse or by carriage. Um, so it's very, very localized. Except I'm gonna, as soon as I say that, I'm going to kind of problematize what I've just said. So traffic between England and Scotland is almost always by horse or by foot. Um, famously in in the heart of Midlothian, the traffic is always by foot with uh, Jeannie Dean walking to London from Edinburgh. Um, but traffic outside of England and Scotland is almost always by ship. So in um, the antiquary and in die Mannering* by Scott, there are really significant roles of uh, ships, of, of pirate ships, especially. Um, and, and so we can kind of see the ways in which Scott's fiction reveals not just the geography of interconnectedness or the infrastructure of the union, but also the, the transnational infrastructure. Um, and I think the act of union is kind of a useful point there, right? Like it defines citizenship in terms of your ability to participate in that traffic. So, um, and the traffic specifically refers to ports. So it's almost imagined in a, in a naval capacity. So there's there's a really important way to think about the coastal um, infrastructure as well as the infrastructure of highways and roads.
1: Brilliant! Um, thank you so much again. I'm just I've enjoyed these questions so much, um, and I think we've had a, a great crowd in. Um, we're now just four minutes shy of of kind of officially winding down. Um, So I just want to thank you so much for such a fascinating talk and it's really drawn a great crowd um, with great questions. We're having several things appear in the chat saying thank you so much for an interesting talk. Um, And it's great to have an international reception this time, which is brilliant. Um, So I do want to thank everyone who's attended. And I wanted to remind people that these seminars are every fortnight so our next seminar is in a fortnight at the same time and we will be hearing from trinity's own professor daryl jones on mr james the demon in the library i actually think daryl is attending so um we're looking forward to that very much um and i just want to thank everyone again and thank the um the hub for making this possible and thank you matthew for appearing despite the uh the drastic time difference and uh, it's just getting dark here in Dublin or starting to um so yes thank you to everyone we will see you in a fortnight um and just a brilliant way to kick off this term so we'll see you all soon we're having more praise flowing in in the chat actually i would recommend that you open it and see everyone saying thank you and um saying that it's been wonderful which i definitely agree with um So brilliant. Thank you all. Enjoy your, well, your Tuesday daytime, Matthew, but to everyone else, enjoy your Tuesday evenings. Um, and we will see you in a fortnight.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. So this is the point where if we were Boris Johnson, we'd pop off somewhere that shouldn't be open, right? Oh my goodness.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. It would be, um, Brilliant. So, thank you so much to everyone. Um, and um, we look forward to more of the series um, soon. The Hub
0: is a community Manuscript, book and print cultures Stamping provenance Languages towards the history to of the time seen, of the year library As well as being here, The Hub is a space Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Carlson. The Hub is about impact The Hub is for everyone And the rise of feminism Here, here to the next 10 years.